This is Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Hello, hello. Happy Saturday evening. Hi, Maroki. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday, Andre. This is Tasting Together. I'm Andre Pru. I'm Maroki Tong. And we've got a great hey. show lined up today. We're going to bust some myths on seasonal drinking, but it's not of the wine persuasion, as you might expect Maroki and I to talk about. But you know what? Beer is a delicious thing, and we've made a commitment that we would talk about more beer this year. And then there's something very exciting that clicked in for me. It's a bit of a follow-up uh, of our interview with the um, Portuguese winemaker a couple weeks ago. If you go to the uh, Global News website, listen to some past episodes of Tasting Together, uh, we're going to visit someone in Australia who's in the thick of harvest. How does that tie in? You'll have to wait till segment four. Yes, actually, I find this really exciting because I think sometimes when we live in a country for as long as we do and are used to the way our season and how our calendars work, we sort of forget how things can be completely different on the other side of the world. A hundred percent. But you saw something online this week that makes for an interesting discussion. And I don't think it's isolated to the food industry, but I think the hospitality industry is really kind of a powder keg about to go off. Yeah, I think... And, you know, we've had so many conversations about how the face of hospitality is going towards whether it is, you know, that the customer isn't always right and that maybe we need to be putting better standards for ourselves as a society to become better consumers, more conscientious consumers and customers and recognizing the hard work of hospitality um, and also, you know, the kind of journey and the revolution that hospitality is facing in terms of an industry structure and trying to, you know, make sure that workers are better compensated. And that, I think that's a conversation that's happened in the States forever. You know, you yeah. there's so many horror stories about servers down there. They're paid like $2 an hour. And if they even make any sort of tip, then they actually lose their hourly of $2 an hour and they have to make it off solely tips. And we've talked about tipping structure, but this is actually something else. I saw a job posting go up for a relatively high-end restaurant mm -hmm. and the position was calling for essentially a, a veteran of the restaurant industry. You know, they wanted you to have wine, like wine knowledge, food knowledge. I think they specifically asked for, you know, uh, multiple years of leadership experience within mm. front of back of house mm -hmm. and then offered essentially the equivalent of minimum wage. I think they said like, yeah, like 15 bucks an hour, maybe to the upwards of 20, depending on experience, quote unquote. Um, let's just say that the the comments on the job posting were less than flattering. Yeah, I really think we're at the point where the pandemic really is a dividing line in the hospitality industry because I have a lot of friends who have worked in fine dining and you read the job posting to me and it's one of those things where, you know, th there's a large group on Facebook where people in Ontario looking to hire, hire people in restaurants tend to go. It's become a bit of an authority in the industry. A job posting like that might attract a handful of people accusing the poster of underpaying, but inevitably the job would get filled. And now mm -hmm. I think we're seeing that backlash getting bigger and bigger where it's just no longer becoming acceptable to offer peanuts when you're expecting a lot of experience in your kitchen. 
Mm-hmm. And I guess what I was thinking about when I was reading this job posting, and you know, a lot of us were not privy to what people are being paid at work, right? Like what at least in certain industries. But I think for a lot of industries, we probably have an idea. Like I think we have a rough idea of how much someone makes if they were a dentist. We would have a rough idea of what someone makes if they um are working sort of in the customer service industry side of banking, like being a bank teller per se. But I think in, you know, in certain industries, there's still maybe a little less transparency than we think. And I think it's also because it can wildly fluctuate. And the question begs is, you know, should we as a consumer become a little bit more conscientious of how an establishment is run and what, and should we make better decisions when it comes to patronizing an establishment um, would we want to be visiting a restaurant per se if you know that maybe they might be having exploitative wages for their staff in the back end? You know, I can speak for myself and I don't want to necessarily throw any large chains under the bus, but I try to avoid for the large part, large chains. I try to get a bit of an idea of who is paying an ethical or a living wage and put my dollars there. But it it is a challenge where, you know, a lot of the large chains exist because convenience is king. Like if you're sitting in your car, you want to grab a coffee on the way to one of those jobs, a drive-through is convenient. And, you know, I think this is one where we've talked a bit about the segment is that we try to put more of the onus on the consumers and less on the owners of the restaurants is that consumers get to vote with their dollars and that whole, like I've I've taken phone calls in doing every segment about minimum wage and tipping, um, you know, in my twenty year career as a producer working on these shows, is that you know it's my teenage daughter, my teenage son working there. The minimum wage jobs are for teenagers, you know, the people who are working the the drive through, like it's just teenager. Oh, it's okay to pay the minimum wage, and it's just like this mindset really just drives me nuts. Like if you take a look at who are working in the fast food restaurants, especially in downtown Toronto. It is not the teenagers. And and even then, if this is your son, your daughter, or your neighbor's son or daughter, do you really want them making the bare minimum? Especially while franchisees and the uh, executives of these corporations are banking millions of dollars a year. Possibly billions. I think there's probably an ideology that has shifted in over the years where once upon a time, perhaps it was a job that you know, a young person would go and experience some, you know, what it's like to be in the workforce. Mm -hmm. But they do it often under the protection that there is perhaps a rooftop to go home to at the end of the day. That's Mm -hmm. why they're working part-time hours outside of school. They gain some work experience. They get a little bit of spending money. But there's a difference between that and perhaps the actual demographic of people who are working those positions currently in modern time, which is often a lot of, you know, full-fledged adults who are working at minimum wage to try and keep a roof over their head. So I think that particular paradigm might have changed. And perhaps let's move away from that too. Like, okay. uh, I, I, I don't, like, I think one of those, you know, there's could be the argument that like, you know, obviously not everyone can afford, uh, uh, you know, the finest piece of steak for lunch every single day. No, and that totally. perhaps, you know, you know, obviously chains offer offer the opportunity to have, you know, a quick grab and go um, of, of it being affordable. I think that the thing that 
you know, I think I struggle with it when reading this particular job description is that this is a fine dining restaurant that yes. is charging, I think, upwards to, um, you know, uh, at least like $100, $200 plates. Okay. Um, that I think, and, you know, and so if you are a restaurant that's serving, uh, you know, if you're, if you're charging someone hundreds of dollars a head and you cannot afford to pay your staff anything more than the bare minimum, I think there's a serious flaw in that model. I couldn't agree with you more. Like, I know the hospitality industry is tough and the margins are tough on food, but I think you're exactly right. If you're charging a couple hundred dollars a head and you need to have an army of people in your kitchen, it's time to reevaluate your business model, especially if you're asking for someone with a lot of experience to deliver that. And the thing is, when you're talking about those fine dining restaurants, it's not just cooking. It's also the the whole experience. I really hope that the people who are delivering that service are being paid fairly. Boy, don't we just sound like the token millennials behind the microphones after this segment. <laughs> well, given that I was born in the 80s, I would say that I fit right into the demographic about being a millennial. And after the break, we're probably going to talk about something that quintessentially a lot of millennials are doing these days, which is having an office that is a little bit beyond, you know, being in a tower or working from home. Um, it is freelancing and whether sitting in a cafe or a restaurant is a place for you to open your laptop and get a few hours in. So we're going to talk with one restaurant owner who's opening his doors. And if you're a cafe surfer, stay tuned to the next segment. He's going to teach us how to be conscientious customers. This is Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. With the world opening back up, Andre, I know you worked at the radio station for a long time and then you went to work from home. Is working in cafes sort of something you like doing or am thinking of doing at all? You know what? I wasn't thinking of doing it until you and I had the conversation that uh, set up this whole segment because I have my sister-in-law has worked in cafes. My wife has worked in cafes. A lot of friends who've worked in cafes. And the impression I've got is just, it's a bit taboo if you're a freelancer to take a laptop, go to your local coffee shop and occupy a table for four or five hours and buy one coffee and nurse it. It's just, I was under the impression that that's just... A no-no. So like I've been thinking about libraries or some other places, but you were telling me that there's a restaurant in your neighborhood in particular that has moved to kind of a really freelance friendly uh, environment. Yeah, it, you know, as you mentioned, I've been a freelancer for well over a decade. And I will say that pre-pandemic um, coffee shops, bars, anywhere with a little bit of food and drink essentially was um, a home for myself uh, when it came to working. And I, I, of course, did do my best to always buy more than just one coffee <laughs> and <laughs> try and be a good customer. So well, I think that's it. You are you in office? And, but I, I sometimes felt like in this new environment, especially in the wake of trying to treat hospitality with more respect and with limited seatings and, you know, wanting to be considered of an environment where crowds may be still of concern, I had to kind of rethink whether hanging out in a coffee shop is still on the docket. And then, you know, a restaurant in my neighborhood, as, as you said, has now partnered up with an online platform where they straight up just offer a space for freelancers during key points in the week, right? You come in, you spend a designated amount of money and you get to hang out there for three hours. And you, I think you get like a coffee and a, and a croissant with it. And I thought, oh, what an 
interesting thing it is to have dedicated spaces now to just you know instead of having it be a gray zone where you maybe venture into a cafe and you sheepishly ask for the wi-fi <laughs> it's just well known right cut and dry right there oh been there done that i've never thought about using a bar as a freelance space definitely something for me to consider as well but when i put the call out to see if this culture has changed uh one man did respond to let us know that it looks like for a lot of restaurants in toronto the culture may be changing and we are joined by boaz rahamim who is the owner of Goldie Sandwiches at 4580 Dufferin Street and also Eisenberg's at 4588 Bathurst Street. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Boaz. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. As a freelancer, and probably will find yourself at Goldie's or Eisenberg's at some point in the future, I want to know right away, how are you set up for freelancers? So right now we have a, a very inviting space uh we're at uh, uh for goldies that is we're at uh, dufferin and finch uh we got a great table set up with about 35 seats um tables are very spread apart um and we're at a corner unit so there's lots of natural light uh, we have wi-fi set up for our clients uh and we have uh it's kind of similar to you know almost like a grab and go where you order at the front um and then you get a pickup number and then our staff will bring you the food to the table or if it's just a coffee uh, they can just call you up you'll come and grab it and go to your table uh, a lot of people ask for the wi-fi and then they end up just having a seat they'll open up their computers uh, they'll have meetings here with uh, some of their colleagues um, so the space is set up uh, very well um, at the uh, 4588 bathurst that's a community center it's uh, actually at the prosterman which is at bathurst and shepherd so that space is actually we're just uh, basically like a grab and go counter there and then there's, um, it's a setup space uh, from the uh, actual facility uh, that has tables and chairs and they have free Wi-Fi as well. Uh, we also have, um, you know, we're able to do reservations and um, the space could be used for multiple uh, things here. I think a lot of people really like it. So why set up your restaurants in this model? Because I know in my setup there, I talked about the concern is that someone's going to come into your restaurant maybe buy a cup of coffee or buy a muffin and then sit there for four hours or, or longer and they've only spent four or five dollars uh how does this work for you so for us um it's that's a good question um for us it's it's tricky because we're at dufferin and finch we're in north york um you know you don't really get so so much traffic coming to this uh, neighborhood a lot of our orders that do come in are takeout orders whether it's uber eats or catering services uh, we do a lot more of those transactions. Um, so for us, it's uh, we, we actually prefer to have people come in and sit down and uh, spend time here. Uh, it fills up the space. So when we get a lunch rush, uh, you know, and a bunch of people start rolling in, uh, it's nice to have people sitting down. I think it's more inviting for, you know, if somebody's a, a new customer coming in, keep in mind, we've only been open for about a year and a half. Um, you know, it's, it's nice to see people enjoying the space. I think if uh, new people are coming in and, they've heard good things, um, I think they'd be confused as to why nobody's in the restaurant. So for us, I think uh, we're, we're welcoming it and we're not putting, uh, you know, like a, a spot open where somebody has to purchase a spot or purchase something every few hours. Uh, but maybe somebody like a Starbucks or a Tim Hortons downtown Toronto, uh, where, you know, their transaction sizes are much smaller and they need to do more transactions to see a, a better bottom line. Uh, for those types of businesses, I think you'd want to see uh, something in place. So I can see people making adjustments on that front. I should want to backtrack a little bit because we talked a lot about the freelancing model. I want to hear about some of the foods that are being served 
at your spots as well? We have so many different things on our menu. Uh, we make our own bread in-house. So it's uh, it's called the Jerusalem bread. And uh, we spice it with something called za'atar, which is a wild oregano. Um, so when we bake it here fresh in-house, it's the smell drives all through the building. Uh, and we have offices on top of us as well. So that that gets people to come out of their offices and come down and have a, yeah. coffee, have a little sandwich. Um, but the cool thing with these sandwiches is they're actually uh, basically pressed sandwiches. Uh, and when we cut open the, the bun, uh, we top it with a few different flavors. Uh, our best seller has Montreal smoked meat inside. Uh, we make all of our own hot sauce. We have spicy mayo. We make our own hummus. Um, so the combination of flavors, I think we've perfected. Uh, we make our own schnitzel here as well. It's a panko crusted one, air fried, so not oily. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, a sandwich or if you want to go a little bit uh, on the healthier side, we do uh, fresh salads. Uh, all of the ingredients are out on display so you can see exactly what's going into your salad. We make all of the dressings in-house. Uh, and then if you don't want a salad and you want, you know, something even a little bit lighter and you want to uh, blend it into a smoothie, we make fresh fruit smoothies. Uh, we have whey protein. We have plant-based protein, uh, coffee. We use a Colombian blend. So uh, with how we've gotten to drive people to our location is by using a, a good quality product uh, and people can see what's going in. So it's, uh, it's fresh ingredients. Nothing's frozen. Uh, and that's where we found our success here. And that's a- another reason why people want to come and be a um uh, u- using our space whether it's freelancing or just coming in for a quick lunch uh, we wanted to make this space an inviting place so people sit down and then new people come in or they hear about our place and they're like oh let's go in you know we always w- hope that people are sitting down when new people come in it just adds to the experience so what advice would you give to someone like Maroki and i who want to get out of our house because we're sick of working in our home offices or are just looking for a new place to go what advice would you give to us to make sure that we're going to be good customers to a restaurant like you to make sure that your space can stay warm and inviting you know you can always ask say hey like how does it work if we want to sit down at one of your tables do you guys have wi-fi maybe like if you are in the downtown core uh, or if you, you notice on the menu that it's just a coffee shop like these places that are just coffee shops and they have small tickets for transactions uh, those places, it's it's harder for them to uh, see a better bottom line. They need to do a lot more transactions. Uh, so I would maybe just ask um, whoever's inside how it works um, and just let them know, like, hey, like, uh, you know, is it okay if we set up for an hour, two hours? It might be here for three. Like, is there a minimum purchase? So I think if you just ask the questions and, you know, you're friendly, uh, usually people will return that to you, especially in Toronto. We've got a lot of friendly people here. Um, so, you know, just find out every place is different with us. Uh, you know, we always try to, you know, welcome everybody in with a quick hello and explain to them how things work. Um, I think most places you can go and do that. You just got to ask. Boaz, thank you so much for the time. And um, hopefully you'll see Maroki and I soon at uh, Eisenberg's and Goldie's. Yes. If you guys uh, plan to make the trip, uh, just let me know. I'll, I'll meet you guys here. We'll do something special for you. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking with a fellow beer expert on the seasonality of beer and whether your beer tastes change when the weather's a little bit colder versus in the heat of summer. Coming up on Tasting Together, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. This winter's been really, really strange. I know it's subconscious. We've mentioned it on the show before that I find myself finding comfort in big red wines in the winter. So I'm drinking a lot more Australian and Chilean and Californian red wines in the winter before shifting to summer. So Maroki, I I know we've sort of unpacked this, but you're a seasonal wine drinker. 
I, I am. And I, I definitely won't be the person that's always proclaiming rosé all year, Riesling all year. <laughs> you shouldn't drink seasonally. But I think, you know, we inevitably feel the impact, right? If, oh. You know, back in the summer, in the heat of the summer, drinking some, you know, a crisp, dry rosé just sounds infinitely more delicious. It's the funny thing, where I think to, as, as journalists, you know, we all preach that, you know, year round drinking. But when I do the audit of my recycling, it's just like, well... I opened one bottle of Riesling over the past couple of weeks and three bottles of Cote du Rhone. So, you know, the, the bias is subconscious. But you were talking to me about seasonal beer drinking. And the mea culpa for me is I am such a basic beer drinker. Uh, I stick to craft, but I drink pretty much lagers year round. I hadn't even thought of the options of changing your beer habits around the year. So what are we getting into this segment? Yeah, I mean, I'm an experimental beer drinker. I know I've said before that I've sort of come out the other end of the tunnel and I am appreciating my Hellas and my lagers a lot more, but this is the season where I'm drinking those winter ales and those porters and those stouts. And I believe that there probably is some seasonality when it comes to beer drinking, but we are bringing on an expert in all matters beer, much more so than myself. We have Ren Navarro joining us from Beer Diversity. Hey, Ren. How's it going? Hey, friends. It's good. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Well, I think we can <laughs> dive right into it, especially for someone like Andre, who says he doesn't really think about seasonality when it comes to beer because he basically enjoys his light beer and lagers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've never given a thought to the seasonality of, of beer, so I'm hoping you're going, I'm hope I'm going to learn something here. <laughs> no pressure, right? No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think oh, that, that when we, when we talk about seasonal beers right like i mean you know obviously you're both talking about seasonal wines and like when you drink a thing um it's more of a a recent and like you know between like the last five ten years recent thing about winter beers and cold season beers so i i would say andre keep drinking what you're drinking whenever you're drinking it because if it makes you happy that's how it should be i will um like <laughs> but I think that yeah, there there is. I mean, we're we're humans, right? Like everyone likes to to say, okay, it's super cold, do this. Uh, so you know, you're looking at stouts, though you can find a Guinness year round, so it already blows all of the arguments out of the water. But it's the one period of time where we talk about being roasty and toasty, and you know, so either higher percentages or or having more flavors to them. So we're talking stouts and porters, but. Um, spice notes, so things that'll mimic like fruitcake or spice cakes, um, you know, winter warmers. So that kind of like, I'm really cold, I've just come inside, I'm sitting by a fireplace. And I, I'm sure that you both describe certain wines this way, right? Like, <laughs> you've been out skiing all day, and you want to like, you know, quote unquote, warm up, here's the wine that you drank. Um, so yeah, I think that there there are winter beers, but uh, rules are made for breaking. Well, I guess before <laughs> we can break any rules, what is the the basic i guess the basic rules that you're talking about so again like we're talking during the summer you're having those lagers and the you know the lighter beers and the, the crispy things where um you know a lower percentage where you're not you're not really in it for for flavor or for the tasting notes you're in it for for just you know, it's a beer flavored beer and it, it's refreshing when we get into the winter we're looking for those things that have a level of complexity that are going to go with you know, the, the big beef dinners that you're having when you're gathering with friends, you're, you know, anything like you're talking like stews and all of these big, like stick to your ribs type things. So beer is kind of mimicking that. So again, higher percentage for most things, um, or in terms of spices, you're looking at like cinnamon, cardamom, 
um, just you know these these things that that evoke winter scenarios. That makes a lot of sense to me, given that the ones that I have seen that are seasonal and hitting the taps, and I know as a precursor, I was thinking to myself, oh, maybe I'm making all this up. Like I'm making a very intense <laughs> assumption here. I'm going to look up winter beers, and I'm the ones I see on tap talk a lot about like the spiced winter ale, or as you said, you know, usually especially around the holiday season, you start getting kind of like the eggnog beer or so to say or mm -hmm. or one of the ones i thought about is even just in the fall time right everyone talks about that pumpkin beer uh for better or for worse that hits the market <laughs> and that's when i started thinking about the seasonality of beers do you find in in your experience that there is an increase like is, is there actually some truth to the seasonality in that people are you know you do notice people consuming more um, stouts or imperial stouts or, you know, higher percentage, um, higher ABV beers or darker beers or things like brown ales or even like cask ales, which I know for the people who don't know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ren, usually like mm -hmm. the cask age stuff is usually a bit flatter too, right? Like not quite as effervescent, yeah. uh, usually served at room temperature. So it's, a little, it's actually warmer temperature wise. Do you find that this does apply in the beer drinking community, that there is a bit of a pivot when the you know season is colder? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's controlled by breweries. So it's, you know, try and, and find a stout in, in the middle of August. And it's really hard to do. Again, unless you're looking at Guinness, uh, there are a few breweries that will kind of start popping them out at the end of the summer. But uh, no one ever says, you know, here's our year round stout because they, you know, we again, we're so trained to be seasonal in how we eat and how we drink that we expect those big, you know, those beers that you were talking about to really show up in the fall. Um, pumpkin spice is, uh, pumpkin spice is universal, right? <laughs> Go to your favorite coffee shop and, you know, and they're talking about this in, in October. So the beer world was kind of like, hey, we can do this too. But mm -hmm. when you're looking at those, those big boozy beers, it's hard to sell because there's such a small group of people who say, I don't care, I'll drink it year round. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it's, you're going to have like an 11, 11% 11 and up beer when it's cold because you're not going anywhere. Um, you know, it's kind of that, like the, the idea that I don't want to go anywhere and I just want to hang out and I just want to watch the snow from this warm space that I'm in. So I'm going to consume this large ABV beer because I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna drink it quickly. It's gonna be a winter sipper, and maybe I'm having conversations with friends. Maybe I'm sharing it with friends. Maybe I'm not. But either way, I'm not going anywhere. So it's hard to suddenly say, "Hey, remember those beers that were specific for these winter, these winter moments? Now you can have it in the spring." And everyone goes, "I don't know." <laughs> like you know, <laughs> I'm starting to, I'm starting to move into these other, these other beers. So yeah, I think that it's, it's breweries that control it because we've been. We've been so well trained to just expect it at certain points in the year. I've never even considered the idea of higher ABV being a winter, <laughs> you know, kind of being a seasonal thing because it's like you sip and you don't have to worry about traveling. You're not like playing golf or something where maybe having something that's 11 percent might lead to a very different game of golf. I don't know. If uh, I've, I don't know. If I've, I don't know if I've ever had a beer that's 11 percent alcohol. Like I'm, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around what that would even be like living in loggerland here where like five and a yeah. half or six percent is considered a, <laughs> a higher alcohol logger, right? But I think that that's the thing. Like if you do see a higher percentage kind of out in the wild before the winter, it's a special release that's been barrel aged for years or it's a brewery's anniversary release. 
and no one is saying like this is the regular and you'll find it all the time um and i think that that some of the higher percentage beers again they're barrel aged so you know they're bourbon barrels or they're wine barrels or they're whiskey barrels so that is what's giving them that higher percentage and it's making it kind of the the fancy beer for people to have Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's it's funny when you were talking about drinking things all year round and whether breweries control the seasonality of beers. I actually have this memory of sitting on a patio in Seattle back in the summer, dripping sweat because it was just so hot and humid. And they had a massive menu, um, which included this like a whole selection of stouts. And I remember staring at it and being like, you look so good. I cannot put you in my body right now. I'm like, yep. please, please still be here the next time I come back in the fall because I do want to taste you, but I think I might melt into the stout, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the stout glass itself. Um, but next time we speak, now that I know the rules and I will try <laughs> to follow the rules, I will then need to break the rules. So we'll see how that goes next time we catch up. Yeah, I think that, but also remember, like, so, you know, if we're talking breaking the rules, um, when you're having darker beers, people always say, you know, it's it's notes of dark chocolate or coffee. If you do an iced coffee, <laughs> you can do a stout. Uh, so it's it's possible to have a stout in the summer. I know Maroki just seems like such a foreign concept, but if you think, okay, I'm going to get these notes of like roasty coffee or, you know, this dark chocolate note and you kind of fixate on it, it becomes incredibly enjoyable when it's hot out. And that's when those rules are for breaking. <laughs> yes. And to be fair, Red, I, I got my start in drinking beer through Guinness when I lived in Northern Ireland. So I will always drink Guinness no matter what time of year it is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks so much for stopping by, Ren. We really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for having me. And coming up after the break, we are heading into Family Day. And we're going to visit the land down under to talk a bit about what's going on in the wine world there. So stick around. We're tasting together on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to tasting together. Toronto's news. Today's talk 640 Toronto. In spite of wanting to enjoy more seasonal beers in the chilliness of the winter like stouts and porters, it's actually been pretty nice weather here, all things considered, Andre. The prairie boy in me is very uncomfortable with 10 degrees in February. I feel like we are going to get the father, son, and holy spirit of blizzards in in March or April. Like, we're, <laughs> we're going to pay for this. It's just how karma works, isn't it? <laughs> well, we're joined by Danny Longo from the Global Newsroom. Danny, has there been any news about impending snowstorms in the next month? Uh, no, no, not in the next week or two, <laughs> at least. I usually don't look more than a week out. So in the next week, yeah, we're, looks like we're above zero pretty much every day. Okay, but you know one place where they really don't have to worry about the weather right now? That is in the Southern Hemisphere, where they're in the middle of the summer. And I was thinking about our interview for Porta 6 a few weeks ago with uh, the winemaker who said that he's done crushes year-round. I actually went and connected with a friend of mine. He used to make wine in Niagara and now has headed to Australia. I'm uh, Chris Robinson, and I'm a winemaker. And uh, where are you making wine right now? So I'm making wine in Western Australia in Margaret River. Or as the locals say, marks. And how's the weather today? So we had thirty percent chance of rain. It did rain. It was like, but it's it's almost more like a sprinkle. But uh, that was in, that was around uh, five thirty six o'clock tonight. And um, but it was twenty three degrees 
It's summer, yeah. And yeah. Uh, you're in the middle of uh, harvesting fruit, right? Correct, yep. yep. Okay, so I guess just sort of a bit of a wine 101 for people here. You're working on the 2023 vintage, right? 2023. So yep. anyone who buys a bottle of Australian wine, likely later this year even, that says 2023, that fruit was harvested in February of 2023? Or like when does the harvest window go in Australia? So it starts, uh, this year's a bit, is about a couple weeks late um, for us. So normally it's, in general, it starts um, the end of January, first week of February, and it will go until April. Oh, wow. Probably mid-April. Like you'll be, we'll be pressing reds probably in mid-April. Most of the stuff comes in, um, like the reds come in around March. Like when I arrived in January... Uh, and when I drove down to Margaret River, the 15th, 16th, kind of thing like that, that date, that's when Verazon started for reds. Okay, and Verazons, for people listening, are when red grapes start to ripen. Because all, all grapes start out as little green berries, and then they turn red when they're getting ready to be picked. Yeah, correct. The vintage will say 2023 on the bottle, even though the grapes started growing in 2022. Yeah. <laughs> That's Australia for you. Everything's backwards. Talking to Chris, it's just, it's kind of cool to hear how a Canadian can transplant themselves, hop to the other side of the world. So Chris will have done two harvests uh, between 2022 and 2023. I actually think I remember asking um, a grower in Australia before, when do they choose to list the vintage, when the grape starts budding or when it's harvested? Because as you mentioned, um, you know, here in Canada, the grapes start growing in the spring and then it gets harvested in September or September through November. And that's kind of, it's the year. It's all happening within the calendar year. But in the other side of the world, it actually happens before the end of the year. And then it's picked the year after. And My I've always asked hurts. them like, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. Danny, did you know that about uh, how a wine that says 2023? I guess that's why you can get like a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc from 2023 in like August or September. It, it doesn't take long for them to to vinify that. It's not time travel or anything. Right. Yeah, no, I did know that. The only reason I know that actually is uh, has to do with ice wine. And like sometimes <laughs> they don't pick until the new year, but the vintage is still the previous year, correct? Oh, my gosh. So that's just even more confusing. How are we supposed to know what's going on? <laughs> I actually had that question before and I, yeah, I think here we do call it the previous, like we do call it the previous vintage because I think like the majority of the grape growing. Well, yeah. The grape growing and, would and be and done. You're just leaving it on the, on the vine to ripen. Oh man. Right. Before we bore everyone with these nerdy details, it is the family day long weekend. Uh, you know what? It's been a while since we sort of just talked about what we're drinking. Maroki, what are you going to be opening this weekend for family day? So I had this Zoom call because, you know, we still do that with people sometimes uh, with um, a wine group. And we were talking about comfort wine and we were all talking about what the me meanings of comfort was. And for me, comfort is like wine that I can enjoy and not get too cerebral about <laughs> and maybe probably comfortable in the wallet as well, because I don't want to just, you know, glug glug something that probably requires a little bit more analysis. So. 
there's likely going to be a little bit of bubbly in there and, you know, to start the day. And then I might roll into some Chardonnay because we all know I love Chardonnay and then probably some red to finish off the day shared with people. By the way, I'm not just drinking all three <laughs> bottles by myself. Well, as family the day, day goes on. You're supposed to drink with your family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, what about you? What are you getting into this weekend? Uh, well, hearing you talking to uh, your friend in Australia, uh, I have a couple of bottles of Shiraz, Australian Shiraz, that uh, one of my favorites. Uh, so I definitely think I'll be opening one of those. And, you know, I'm hoping to maybe make some kind of chili this weekend. Uh, so hopefully, uh, usually I'll have like something like a Valpicella or a Malbec uh, with with that. So, yeah, some deep flavorful reds is what is what I'm hoping to enjoy. Man, I guess it's just it's we're sticking with the seasonal drinking, even though it's been unseasonably warm. I am also going to be uh, reaching for some big reds. Um, specifically, when I talk to Chris, it's a thing where I think a lot of people think about Australia as one big wine growing region, but there's a lot of different different pockets around there, kind of similar to how you know calling all Canadian wine wouldn't be fair to it. We've got growing regions in Nova Scotia, Ontario, and BC, Quebec. And a few other like small places where there's pockets of it. And obviously the wines are all different. So I went out of my way to track down some Margaret River wines because that's where Chris is making wine. I'm grabbing something called Voyager, the modern Cabernet Sauvignon that you can get from the um, LCBO website. They have a few bottles kicking around. It's on sale right now, actually, for 32 bucks. So not super cheap, but it's not super expensive. I actually yeah. really like that you brought up BC wine and all of this, too, um, when you were talking about different regions, because... When I did the comfort wine talk, I was talking about a uh, BC Merlot, um, BC Merlot from this winery in the Okanagan called Intersection, actually. And it's, oh, yeah, yeah, they're they're further south in 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 the Okanagan, so they're warmer, so they can ripen things like Merlot, Merlot. out there. And actually, for anyone who is interested in following our journey on Instagram, as you know, Andre and I have mentioned before, we both have a presence there. Him at Andre Wine Review and myself at Nine Ounces, please. We're going to be doing an Instagram live on uh, Wednesday, February 22nd at 8.30 at night, where we're going to be speaking with the winemaker from Intersection and digging into Merlot. And if you are ever interested in trying to start a wine cellar and aging wine, that's what our uh, little Instagram live is all about, starting a cellar. For sure. I think the best part about this segment, I we both have pretty wicked collections in our uh, in our basement at this point. But I think it's the whole thing. People think about wines they want to age as costing a lot of money. And obviously, a lot of those big heavy hitter wines are, are, are made to be aged. But you and I are looking for those affordable gems, $25 and under, to uh, you know to build a collection, to have those fine wines when you want to entertain in two, three years and have that bottle of wine that's just so, so perfect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And maybe to change your mind about aged wine as well, because uh, we have all, uh, for those of you who don't know, Andre tends to turn his nose up on aged wine. He likes them young and fresh <laughs> and fruity. Oh, man. It sounds like we're about to have an appearance from Edgar McSnob again. <laughs> Dan, is aging wine something that is on your you know, prerogative? Uh, we uh, we do have I have a fairly large uh, wine rack and um, it's almost done not on purpose. But I do have, I, I kind of have a pattern to it. There's a method to the madness. I put all the bottles on the very bottom that I want to age as much as possible. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I haven't, I haven't touched so many of them. You know, I have the rack and then in the basement, there's also a bunch of boxes. <laughs> that I oh, nice. Uh, 
that I haven't touched in a while. So yeah, I, I, that's uh, that's on my to do list for the weekend. Yeah, I think well, your collection's largely Ontario as well, isn't it? It is. The majority of it is Ontario, but you know, I have like, especially with the Reds, I'll have like a few, you know, uh, maybe a, a nice Bordeaux, or I have like, you know, something. And those are the ones that I, I that are on the bottom shelf. They tend to be a little bit more expensive that I don't want to touch for a little while. And then, yeah, if I'm entertaining or if it's a special occasion, I might uh, crack one of those open once in a while. Well, Danny, if you ever want to entertain or have help with your basement <laughs> or to clear it out, I am uh, more than happy to lend a hand or a few muscles on the weekend. <laughs> and that takes us to the end of Tasting Together for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you all have a great Family Day weekend. And make sure you tune in next Saturday at 5 p.m. We're always here to bring you the scoop on what's new and cool on Eats and Drinks in Toronto. So make sure you check back on a weekly basis on 640 Toronto.